So about six, seven years ago, a gentleman contacts me, and they're looking to um, bless over 100 youth. It's this group of youth pastors, and they are seeking to pour into their youth and see their youth transformed. And they call me up and say, hey, we, we would love an opportunity to serve in a city. Do you have any ideas? So at that time, Mac Development was running um, our uh, short-term missions experiences, and we had a, a day that we planned for their youth to be able to come down, bless our community, and uh, it was about, yeah, it was about 100 of them. I come to find out that each of these youth pastors actually kind of had a, a unique common thread that one man had poured into all of them. He discipled them. And as he discipled them, they went on to become youth pastors, pastors, and a number of other things. Uh, one of the men uh, that one of the guys that was poured into is actually going to be uh, Jason Copeland, a brother in the Lord that's going to preach for us today. Uh, he is a, has been a pastor of 11 years now at a cross point. Uh, he and his wife, Becky, and I think he's got a, a pick of a beautiful family that he'll show in a minute. Uh, but come on up, Jay. We want to pray for you. Uh, Jason has been a... Hey, man. Uh, Jason's lead pastor and Pastor Russ have met, and, uh, and Jason and myself have met a number of times, uh, been able to not just talk about ministry, but just talk about life, uh, connecting, and as, uh, I won't say busy, but as active as we both are, uh, we've been able to develop a friendship in the midst of the activity. So uh, I want to pray for this brother and uh, give him the, the courage and the joy of encouraging us in God's word. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for uh, Jason and Becky, we thank you, Lord, for uh, the ministry that's taking place there in Gross Point. I'm thankful, Lord, for uh, his posture, uh, where he wants to submit to you, uh, where he wants to celebrate you, where he wants to be obedient to your word, where he's willing to give of his life uh, so that others may do the same. And now, Lord, he's here uh, to encourage us. Would you allow uh, him to be uh, humbled by your presence? And used by you as a tool for his for your own glory, God. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank Leon. you. Um, I have uh, long looked forward to this opportunity. I know that when we were talking in years past, there were certain dates that we tried to work out where I could be here, and it never worked. Uh, but today does, and uh, this is honestly for me a very great privilege. I I think the world of Leon. I don't know Eric as well, but I think he's probably a pretty good guy too. <laughs> Um, and so I'm glad to be able to be here and just share with you. My family is at our church. We are um, in Gross Point Woods. We're about eight miles north on Mac. That's if you were to drive eight miles north, you would find us. But this is the most recent good photo that I could find. Some of you know, if you have four children, you don't get a lot of good family photos. You usually get maybe three out of the four kids that are smiling. Maybe one's crying. At this one, at least everyone's smiling. We're not all looking at the same camera. Uh, but that is, uh, that's my wife, Becky. We've been married for 15 years. I met Becky in kindergarten. No, first grade. Met her in first grade. We didn't, uh, we didn't get married till ninth grade. And then we have been together since. It's not true. Okay. Uh, my, my son is uh, 11 years old. And uh, his name is Jack. And my oldest son, my daughter, Claire, in the middle there with the blue glasses. She is nine. Uh, my son, Max, is six. He's the one who will wear the bow tie. My other son had a bow tie and at this point had pulled it off. And then the little one in our arms is Camille. She's three, and that rounds out the Copeland clan 
uh, for now, we say, but I really hope that that just rounds out the Copeland clan. But what God chooses to do, God chooses to do. And so we'll, well, we will see what happens. I like to fit my family in one minivan. I feel like if we're going to have to have two minivans, then, then we're going to get crazy. But right now we fit in one minivan, so that's good. Today's task is Exodus 38, 21 through 39, 43. It's a lot of verses. You can find it in the Bible in front of you on page 51. We're going to work through it as we go. We will read this together. And so you got to stay with me when we start reading on things because some of it gets a little bit repetitive. You know, when I read to my children, and I try and read to my kids a lot, I don't read to them enough. All right? But when I read to them uh, at home, uh, especially at night, uh, we review what we've read before. My boys and I are working through a uh, a book right now, and, and I will remind them what we read before. And in listening to the sermons that, that your wonderful pastors have preached, reminder is always good. So, you know, when this, this doesn't just happen out of nowhere. You've been in Exodus, so you know that this is building on itself. In chapter 35, Moses has gathered the people together to share with them uh, what the Lord has commanded as it pertains to the way that he is to be worshipped. And Moses relays instructions on the tabernacle. He talks to the craftsmen. He says, here's how you're going to build this, this, and this. You have this wonderful model here uh, that's built up here that you can come and see and get an idea of the intricate detail that God laid forward for people and for the craftsmen and for Moses to communicate as to what should be built and how. And this morning, we come to the concluding comments on the construction of the tabernacle, especially concerning the grandeur of it. The silver and the gold. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you've just been blown away by the grandeur of something. The beauty of it. You know, when you go to Disney World, if you ever go there, there's beautiful buildings. But if you, if you knock on it, it's all hollow. It's, it's fake. All right? But if you go somewhere else, I've, I've been to, to Washington, D.C., and you see some of the buildings uh, that are a part of our nation's history. You knock on that, that's solid. And when you do that, or at least for me, it takes my breath away just a little bit. Like, wow, people put this together. Especially when you see something old, people put this together. And and you come to understand that there's a grandeur involved in there. That's what what we're going to see here. We're also going to hear about the priestly garments, which God reminds us and was serious about as to how worship should be done. And so in all of these instructions, there are what I think of as whispers of redemption. Because throughout all of it and throughout uh, your study in here of what's going on in there, there's, uh, there, there's an echo. Maybe echo isn't a good word. I like the, the whisper of what is to come. For the people, they'll understand the importance of worship. And they'll worship God kind of in expectation of what he's going to do. But also in gratitude for what he has already done. He redeemed them. He delivered them. He parted a sea for them. And so they're going to worship him out of, uh, out of love because of that. And a lot of this is going to hearken back to that, but also it's going to look forward in a whisper sense to that one who will come, to that one who will show up and will make sense of all of this. And that's Jesus Christ. Uh, the wonderful book that my family has worked through is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
And if you've never, it's good for adults. We give it out at church to young families and we hope the adults read it because it helps us understand that all of scripture works towards the coming of Christ. And then all of scripture looks back at what Jesus has done and anticipates his return. And I love this phrase. It says it takes the whole Bible to tell the story of redemption. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all others fit together. And suddenly you can now see a beautiful picture. That's what happens. Jesus connects all of this together for us. So as we move through this today, we'll pause at times to see how Christ connects this back to us. And in this passage this morning, it helps us to understand the importance of worship as it pertains to the gospel. And as it pertained for them during that time to understand what God had done and what God will do. And so it helps us to see how then do we worship. Now, we would understand and would agree that there's different contexts in which we worship. I last summer went to to the Czech Republic. My parents have done mission work in the Czech Republic for the past 10 years. And I went with them. And when we went into a worship service, it was much different than what I was used to. There have been other times where I've been uh, at a mission trip or just at a different church and things are different. So we're not talking necessarily about everything that happens in the worship service as much as the heart that is behind it. The context from which or the content and the direction. And so during the time of Moses, worship was pretty much a hit or miss thing. If you're worshiping another God during that time, you really don't know how to get their attention. If, if we read in scripture, if you, if you get to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you, you read about how they chose to worship the, the other gods of that time, like, like the god Baal, they didn't know what they were doing. They would roll up onto a hill, they would get up there and say, okay, what do we do now? Well, let's chant. So they'd chant. That's not working. Let's kill something. So they'd sacrifice it. Maybe that worked. No. Let's cut ourselves. Let's dance. Let's yell. They didn't know what would work. So they tried whatever they could think of. And in every kind of religion, all right, in every kind of, of, of religion that brings itself to worship something apart from, from Christianity and really those that, that rely on a revealed word, okay, people come up with their own way. They figure out what they can. They go what we call at our church. They go the the Dr. Phil or the Oprah approach. Whatever works. Whatever I can figure out. I'm going to pick up myself. I'm going to make this happen. And yet God here says to them, you're not going to figure it out. Let's just end that right now. You're not going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out for you. And I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. And that's what God does. And that's what God has continued to do. And that's what he's doing today. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He says, I figured it out. And let me tell you how it's going to be. So he reveals to the people how they should worship him. And behind each request and instruction is a teaching moment. Now, we should pause to understand that God directs us to worship him and asks us to worship him and tells us to worship him, not because he needs us. You're nice people. I met a lot of you today, great people. I don't have anything bad to say, but God doesn't need you. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, really. But, but I, I need you to understand, he doesn't need you. Um, my, one of the movies we love at our house is Elf. Uh, it's a great theological, deep movie, Elf. But if you know, at, at the end of the movie, in order for Santa to get his sleigh in the air, the people, they got to believe. And they got to hope. And they got to sing. 
And sometimes we, we come towards God with that kind of a mentality, either um, explicitly or implicitly, that it's nice I'm here to sing to God today. He's gonna, he needs that. Or I'm going to put some money in a plate later. This is, you know, I'm doing something nice for God today. Or I, I did not scream at my children today. We got in the van. We drove where we were going. I did something good for God. Now, does God want us to do good things? Absolutely. Does he need your things? He does not. And he's clear on that in here. And we should begin with that point of always understanding, all right, that God does not need us. Doesn't require our belief to be effective. All the sacrifices, all the items in the temple or in the tabernacle, everything that we're going to read about and talk about. He doesn't need those things. He gives us those things out of his good mercy and grace so that we would know him better. That's what he does. We live this side of the cross. And so the principles of worship that are laid out here are, are here to remind us as we see uh, of the truth of our deliverance, not from Egypt. We've been brought out of Egypt, but we've been brought out of sin. We've been brought out of slavery to sin and we've been given a new life. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I hope that we see how the Hebrew people were reminded of their salvation and how we need to be reminded of ours. Every time when we come together, and I've already experienced here at this church, when a, when a gospel-centered congregation comes together, we remind ourselves of that truth. We remind ourselves of the gospel. One of my uh, friend's church says it this way, that every week they come together, they seek to represent the grand truths of the gospel to ourselves and each other. So that's kind of an introduction. If we were at my church, my people would be worried. Because that was a longer introduction than they would be used to. They wonder what, what is going on here. We'll be here all day. All right, but we will, um, we will be close to here all day, but not quite. So let's read the first section together. Exodus 38, we'll start with verse 21. We're going to read through verse 31. 38, uh, 21 through 31. These are the records of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites and under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Bezalel, the son of Uri, of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer of an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca, a head, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, a hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, had, for it and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. So we're reading here another, a number of instructions which remind us again that God has uh, given us instructions. God doesn't leave us in the dark. That God has pursued them. 
and told them what they should do. Uh, I have children. I have four of them. I showed you the picture. I'm frequently giving them instructions. Do this. Don't do that. Please put this away. Please don't make your mother angry. Please listen. All of these kinds of things. Why? Because I want them. All right. I want them to, to grow up ultimately to pursue Jesus Christ. All right. But I want them also in their daily life to, to be uh, free, in a sense, from the trouble that they would get into if they just did everything that they wanted. So I give them instruction. God here is not leaving them in the dark. He gives them instruction. Again, not born out of some sort of cosmic need. He doesn't need us to fulfill something. All right, but these instructions are for the benefit of the Hebrew people. He's pursuing them to say, you want to worship, you want to know me. Here's how you do it. And this is how God has acted throughout. It's interesting, always been interesting to me that the first thing that happened, Adam and Eve noticed that they sinned. They, they realized they had shame and guilt. And God shows up. God comes to them and says, what have you done? What has happened here? God, in a sense, that's a, that's a graceful, merciful response. What he could have done is just said, we'll start over. Goodbye. But he comes to them. Noah doesn't just think, you know, that looks like it's going to rain like it was the last few days. I kept waiting to, for God to tell me to build an ark. So much rain going on. All right? he, he doesn't just decide to do this on his own. God says, you know what? This is what's going to happen. You are going to need to build an ark. Not because Noah's a good person. Not because Noah's a nice guy. Not because Noah was doing what was right. But because God, in his grace, said, I'm going to pick Noah. Later, Abraham is out probably worshiping some sort of foreign God and God appears to him and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because you deserve it, but because I am choosing to work my redemption in humanity through you. Later, Moses is in the wilderness. Moses is just minding his own business and God appears to him. God comes to him in a burning bush and says, this is what you're going to do. God, time and time again, comes to his people and says, because you in your fallenness, sinfulness, and humanity will never figure this out on your own and can't even begin to do it right, I am going to tell you exactly how it needs to be. And this is what we begin to see because this is some detailed stuff. Some of you live like that. Some of you, all of your, you know, if you're going, uh, going somewhere, you're, you're leaving your children with someone, my wife will leave like a five-page note. You know, this person, he has a bath at this time. Make sure he watches. Don't let him watch this. He can watch that. All right, he needs this, this blanket. He needs this doll, all this stuff. My note looks like bed eight. We will be home later. Clean up. All right, that's my note. And then she comes in and fills it in. God doesn't leave us to wonder, what do I do? He gives the details. And he gave them the details. He said, you're going to worship me. Here's how you're going to be. You're going to be a people set apart. It's going to work this way. All right, you're going to set this thing up. And this is how it's going to look. All right, and this becomes for us, I think, a, a reminder. It became a reminder for them that every time, hopefully... And it wasn't true in every case. But every time that they would walk through uh, their, their community and they would walk by the tabernacle, it was an opportunity for a parent to look at his child and say, do you know why this is here? This is here because God told us what to do. This is here because God has appeared to your ancestors. This is here because God has called us to be holy and set apart. This is here because God expects something of us. God pursued them and it became an opportunity for them to remind their children of how they had been pursued. 
of how God had come to them, even in the midst of their sin and even in the midst of their regret or neglect rather, and knew that they should do. You know, when we gather and worship, we're reminded that God has pursued us. Because some of you may feel as though you wandered into Christianity or you wandered into your faith, but that's so far from the truth. God pulled you out of whatever gutter you were in and brought you here. And it could have been a gutter of moral filth and it could have been a gutter of morality. All right, I grew up in a church. I grew up, I was a good kid. I did what was right because I was good at it. I didn't know you could say no to your parents until my brother was old enough to say no. I was a good kid. I always did what I was told. He turns four. He's like, no. I'm like, can we do that? Is that an option here? I always grew up making the right choice. Not because, not because I was this great person, but because I was just good at being good. And I thought that that made me okay with God. And it was only when I realized that in my attempt to please him, or in my efforts to to gain salvation on my own, that I was just as lost as anyone else, did I realize that I came from a different kind of gutter. Everyone comes from somewhere, yet God pulls us to himself. God has pursued us, not out of goodness in my heart, but out of the goodness of who he is. Not because he needs me, but because I need him. Not because he takes joy in seeing me come to him, but because I take joy in coming before him. God doesn't need me for anything, but calls me to himself and pursues me. And what a beautiful truth that is. You know, we live in a culture and in a time of people who want to be pursued. People want to be pursued. They want to be told that they're great. They want to be told that they're loved. I have thanked the Lord that I did not grow up in the era of promposal that we live now where you have to come up with some sort of elaborate poster or way in which to win the heart of the person that you're asking to some sort of dance. I was barely creative enough to get married. All right, I don't know how I would have ever pulled something off for a dance. All right, but it's a reflection of what's in our heart. We want to be told nice things. We want to be pursued. We want someone to come for us. And I believe that that's in our heart, not so that everyone will get a date to a dance, but it's in there, that spark, that desire is there, and it is God-given so that we will understand the one who has pursued us to the cross is the one who will fulfill us. See, all of these other religions that existed of that time would promise prosperity if. You could have this if you just do this or figure this out. And yet, uh, the, re- the, the religion of the Hebrew people, all right, this God-fearing uh, religion said that God is not waiting for you to figure him out. He, has, he is revealing himself to you. He's pursued you to the point where he would reveal himself. And so that's what we see. That's where all of this begins. And that's where the gospel begins. It begins with God pursuing you. And when we come together and when we're with other believers, we should remind ourselves of that, that God has come after us. In the same passage, though, we also read about how the people respond with great generosity. I I didn't know. I had to look it up. I don't know what a shekel of a sanctuary threw me off. All right. But we're talking about over a ton of gold. 
four tons of silver, two and a half tons of bronze. And the Bible gives us these figures so that we can understand both the grandeur of the, of the tabernacle, how beautiful and ornate this, this place is. And it would remind the people that God, um, that God has loved them in a lavish way and that God has within him the ability to meet all of their needs. All right, but we also see then the reaction of the people. All right, and they, they react out of generosity. They react out of generosity and give to God and give to the building of this tabernacle those things that are necessary. All right, they give all of these things, which I think is an appropriate reaction to the love of God. God has loved you even though you don't deserve it. Your heart should therefore be generous. Generous in how you love him and generous in how you love others and how you proceed. In their generosity, this becomes a model for us. God pursues them. He delivers them. He's redeemed them. Their reaction is to be generous. When we remind ourselves of what God has done in our life and that without him, we would be nothing, that we've been delivered and that we've been pursued, we'll cultivate a generous heart that works its way out in real ways. This building is, a, is an example of that, that you all have given of yourselves to, to find yourself here out of the, the generosity that is in your heart, where you look and say, God has worked through this church to do great things for me, or God has worked through this church rather to, to save me. And so I want in my heart to respond. Now, it isn't uh, if I give, then God will. It can never be that. We don't give to get things. We give because God's already given We give back because of what he's already done. We never, ever give and then put strings attached. That doesn't work. I often uh, just laugh when I see that on TV. People will promise God, I will do this if you do that. How does that work for you? you? Are you at the level where you can just bargain with the creator of everything? Can you say to him, you know what, I'll do this for you, but then you who need nothing from me, you're going to do this. How That doesn't work. And so when we give as believers, we give out of generosity from the salvation that we enjoy. And because of that, honestly, we can't give enough. We can't. And we know that. And we feel that. That that there's not enough that we could ever do. And that's there to remind us that it is not about what you do. I'm sure it's been said here before. Religion is about what you do. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. So we don't worry about what we do. But we should be We should be generous. And I would even argue that we should be more generous than what is reflected here. Because these people lived in anticipation of the ultimate redemption that would one day come. We live being able to look at what Jesus has already done. We know about the fulfillment of all of these things. And so while they were giving of shekels and tons and things, we lay ourselves down. We follow Romans 12, which says we are, we give of our bodies. We give of everything we have. It is our spiritual act of worship. It doesn't mean that you sign all your accounts over to Eric or Leon. Maybe you do that here. I don't know. If you do, should, we should talk, all right? I often tell my people, when they come for your accounts like that, that's when you need to go to another church, all right? It's not about that, but it is about understanding your role no longer as an owner, but as a steward. That every good thing that you've been given has come from God. And so when he calls and needs something, when he tells you or or wants something for the kingdom, when he calls and says, you need to do this, well, it's your money. I often, it it becomes a prayer of humor. I say, God, apparently you wanted a new garage door this week because my kids have broken mine. 
So we're going to have to use your money, and I, and I get sarcastic. I have to remind myself, I'm praying to God. I have to use your money to fix the garage door that these children you gave me messed up. <laughs> I hope you're happy, you know? And then I calm down, and I, I apologize and repent because I, I don't want to speak ill like that. But that's, that's the mindset of giving it to him. So we ask ourselves, of course, time, talent, treasure, your, your things are important. And money is a way to be generous, but there's many other ways. And how have you been generous? How have you been generous to God? How have you been generous to God? Do you think of your things as money and your stuff as yours? Or do you think of them as God? How do you view your career? Is your career your career? Or is it the career that God has placed you in? A long time ago, my dad uh, dragged me because I didn't want to go to a promise keepers event. And I heard Tony Evans uh, and I thought he was yelling at people. I grew up in a, in a very stoic, quiet church. I thought Tony Evans was yelling at people, saying, who told you you were a businessman? You're not a businessman. You're a Christian. God has placed you in the role of a businessman. And that changed my way of thinking, even at a young age. Some of us, we live for our career. I got to move up. I got to get here. I got to get here. I want to be in a place where I can uh, make money, or I want to be in a place where I can make a difference. Those are, those are fun. You need to be in the place where God has you. Your career is not your career. It's the career God has given to you. Are you willing to look at him as your life? Do you look at your life as something God has given you to lay down for him? You know, we, we want our children to be safe. And sometimes I think that that's, we're just buying into the American dream and, and not God's, God's will for their life. I, grew, I work at a church where um, people, and I say this to them, People are more concerned a lot of times about the earning potential of their children than about their morality. And so they would rather see them get married at age 30, having failed morally all along the way, than get married at age 21, 22, and struggle financially for the first part of their life. All right, we set things. Are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to lay your children down? Are you willing to be generous before God? When my parents decided to go on the mission field, my grandfather, who was in his 70s, said, well, why would you do that? And then he figured out that he needed to have a better attitude. He knew the Lord and loved the Lord, but he couldn't understand why they would go away from him. And then he came to them and said, I realize you're only my children because God has given you to me and I cannot withhold you from them. And so my parents left for a little while and went on the mission field. All right. How do you look at things? How have you been generous? Are you generous with others? Is your home open? Is your home open to people that you love? And then is your home open to people that you don't love? Do you smile only at the neighbors that are nice? And do you hide from the ones that you don't like? Or is your home open? See, God has pursued us. He's given us salvation even when we don't deserve that. And that should work its way out. For the Hebrew people, it meant that they were going to be generous in the building of this temple. For us, it means that we are generous in the building of God's kingdom. And that means that we have to be generous to those people who are around us, even those people that we do not like. It means that we open our homes when people are in trouble. It means in many cases that we get involved in things like orphan care. And we say to people and we say to to the systems that we will take these children. Uh, There's people at my church and and in a lot of churches that are very passionate about a pro-life stance. And I am too. But we also need to be passionate about those who are already born. We can't, just, we can't just fight for life and then when a child's born, ignore them. We have to open our homes as believers and say, yes, we want that child to be born and we want that child to be a home. And we'll put another bunk bed in. We'll find another room. We'll build a bigger house. 
we'll do what we have to do because these children shouldn't go without a home. We are generous. Are you generous in your church community? When you come here, sometimes people, probably it doesn't happen here. It happens in my church. They come in and they consume. They come in, they listen. It's great what you said today, Pat, and then they leave. They do very little or nothing. And then they, they, they come back next Sunday. And then on occasion, we'll get a little note from them that will say, you spelled something wrong in your notes. Or, you know, the, I didn't have my parking space before. We become consumers. We just want what we get. Rather than being generous and looking around and seeing people who are making church their life, making, uh, living their life rather for, for God and that reflecting itself in, in their kingdom work here, where can you be generous? And if you don't have time, then you need to carve time out. I'll just tell you, if you're a believer and you say, I don't have time to serve, you should carve time out. Your calendar's too full with things that aren't that important and you need to find time. So I say that nicely and lovingly, but I can, pro- I can leave here. You may never like me again and that's fine because I'll go, I'll go back to my church. But if you're, <laughs> if you're not doing anything then, and you're a believer, all right, if you're here visiting, thank you. But if you, if you claim Christ and you follow after him and you do your quiet time in the morning and you have your personal, but you're never doing anything for the kingdom, shame on you. I'm going to. Okay, I got a clap out of that. After I said, shame on you. That's, I'm going to tell my people at my church, next time I say, shame on you, they need to clap too. <laughs> so in reaction to the truth of the gospel, we can't help but have incredibly generous hearts. Now this next passage that we get to, uh, verses 1 through 31 of chapter four or 39 is long. I want you to follow with me. There's a phrase that appears over and over again, and I think this is what we can take from it. It says, from the blue and purple scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into the fine twine linen and skill design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges and the skillfully woven band on it was one piece and with it made like it of gold, blue and purple, scarlet yarns and fine twine linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastplate in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span, its length and a span, its breadth when doubled. And they set it up in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row was an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in the settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. 
They attached the two ends of the cords to the two settings of the filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breast piece on the inside, next, inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod as it seems above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breast piece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord commanded Moses. He, made all, he also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue And the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with the binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made coats of woven fine linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of fine linen and the caps of fine linen, the linen undergarments of fine twined linen and the sash of fine twined linen and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue to fasten onto the turban above, as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's a wonderful phrase that pops up time and time again. As the Lord commanded Moses. He reminds us over and over again that the people did exactly as they were instructed. They did exactly as what they were told when it came to constructing these garments. You're to do this from everything to a pomegranate to a bell, to a pomegranate to a bell, pomegranate to a bell. Everything was to be precise. Everything was to be perfect. Everything should reflect that they listened and obeyed the commandments that God had given. We're reminded again that God doesn't leave us in the dark as to how we live. You know, we we come to him in faith. He saves us and doesn't then just abandon us. You know, sometimes when there's a, there's a catastrophe, people are pulled out of a, a burning train. Someone looks at them and if they're okay, if they've been saved, they move on. And they go to whoever needs saving next. And we think sometimes of being saved as being like that, but God doesn't leave us as though he can only minister to one person at a time. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent and all-powerful such that in our salvation, he remains with us and dwells inside of us and continues to instruct us. We are not alone once brought to him to determine again how to live the right way. This is a problem that we have nowadays. In a lot of ways and in a lot of churches, people huddle up. They have a holy huddle and say, how should we live? This is a great question. It's a phenomenal question. How should we live? What should we do in the midst of the culture that we're in? But where we will go from there depends entirely upon how we choose to answer that. Because sometimes we think we're smart and we can figure out how we should live. We'll just figure it out together. If ever we try and determine the way of our life apart from God's revealed word, we will go sideways. We will, we will end up somewhere else. One, one Sunday, my son came to me. He's like, Dad, my six-year-old, I'm ready for church. 
Well, he was not ready for church because his, he had missed not one button, but two. You know, boys can almost get away with missing one button. It almost looks okay. You're missing two buttons and everything is off. He's got this, his collar is up near his ear. This one's down here. And I'm like, son, we got to fix this. Why? Because he was off down here. And as he kept going, he ended up further and further off till he didn't look anything like he was supposed to look. There are too many churches today that when they try and determine how are we going to live, what are we going to do? They get together and say, well, what does culture say? You know, what would be relevant in our community? We don't want to talk about something that would bother people. So let's talk about what's good. Let's talk about what people would like. Let's talk about what would get us an award or what would, would get us approved by different organizations rather than what does scripture say? So much easier. It really is to go and say, what's the Bible say? To make a decision. I, I love that at my church, our elders will get together and say, what does scripture say? That makes it so much easier than to have an argument with someone over what we feel. Because I, I feel different all the time. I wake up some mornings, I feel one way. And the next day, I feel different. You know, I don't know if I'm getting old, if that's part of it. My hair's falling out. My chill, I don't know. I feel different all the time. I don't want to make decisions based on how I feel. I make decisions based on what God has said. Amen. The people could have woken up and said, how are we going to dress our priests? And somebody could have said, I don't want to wear a turban. I don't want pomegranates. Right? I don't, I don't want to put pomegranates on my tassels. I would rather put something else. And they could have said that. And do you know what would have happened? They would have wandered in there, gotten past that curtain. God, God would have told them what's wrong. Because he was clear. This is how you're supposed to worship me. This is how you're supposed to follow me. Friends, our life and the choices that we have to make in our life are clear. I had someone in my office once. And I don't want to, I, I want to be careful in how I present this, because there are times, there are times in married relationships where um, biblically separation is, is, is okay, and you go through your pastors and you talk to them about that. But this person was dead. God doesn't want me to be married to them anymore. The person told me. I said, okay, well, can you walk me through that? I was praying. God told me, doesn't want me to be married with them anymore. I'm like, really? So God just told you that? Yes. Well, would God tell you something that isn't in Scripture? Oh, no, he would never do that. Okay, well, let's look what it says in Scripture. And so we start to go back and we look at what it says here. Because too often we want what we feel like. And what we feel like isn't always what we should want. Because God has said it should be done a different way. The New Testament, we come to the understanding that our entire bodies are our sacrifices. Romans 12, that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. And so... Um, when, when, we, when we do that, our living then becomes different. And we, we instead of following what we want, begin to, to ask God to change our hearts to reflect what he wants. And we will hear then from time to time that we're supposed to, to be different. And, and this is true. If we're living in, in the following of the instructions that are put forth in Scripture, then we should be different and people should take notice. Now, for some of us here, we don't like that idea. I am one of those. I like to just fit into a crowd. Whenever I go somewhere new, even here this morning, there's an element just of nervousness with me as I'm weird. Like, okay, I don't know if these people are going to like me. You know, I kicked a, a cup of water over there and nearly thought, what's going to happen? Someone's going to come and tell me to leave. You know, weird, weird things like that. All right, I don't like to draw attention to myself. When I'm in Kroger and someone says pastor, I put my head down. I'm like, oh, because then everyone looks at me. There's a pastor in Kroger? What's he doing? <laughs> You know, clean up your language. There's a pastor on aisle four, you know? 
And so I cringe a little bit. But here's the thing, and it shouldn't be because of our title. But, but when people who know you see you coming, they should know you as a person who hasn't made life up on their own. They should know you as a person who's following something greater than themselves. Now, they might not know. Just, it might be someone that you, you meet at your child's school. They might not know that you're a believer in Christ, but they know that you don't scream at your kids on the way in. All right? They know that you treat your wife well. You know, at work, someone might not know that you're a believer in Christ yet, but they do know that you don't laugh at those jokes, that you don't talk about women that way. Uh, in your mom's group that you're a part of, they might not yet know that you're a believer, but they know you don't come and complain about every man you know. They know that you don't come angry all the time. So, so there's an essence, we're supposed to be different. Why? Because we're following the instructions that God has laid out for our life. We should be a city on a hill, both collectively and individually. We should stick out. We should stick out. I, I am going over this again and again with my, my oldest son, fifth grade. Dad, everybody has, everyone doesn't have because you don't. <laughs> and you're not getting that either. You know, dad, everybody's seen this. No. Number one, I know that that's, whenever anyone says everybody, that's not true. But, but trying to get him to agree with that is it's a whole other argument. All right, but, but just that idea of son, we are different and we will continue to be different. You may be laughed at. All right, but I'm more concerned about where your heart is with Christ than whether a fifth grader laughs at you. Now, for us, that, that makes total sense. But for a fifth grader, that's hard. He, I'm asking him every day to lay his life down and to lay aside everything that's important to a fifth grader in a sense. And I look at him and I say, I know this is hard, but we are, we are a family, all right, that chooses to honor Christ in what we do. And so you're not going to be in class for this. You're going to sit out for that. You're not going to have this. You're not going to go there. We're not going to go here. We're not going to buy you all these things, all right? And this is the life that God's called us to. And the instructions that we've been given in scripture that pour down then and how we parent and how we live. God has not left us in the dark. He's given clear instructions. And then when we read these instructions, what do we do? We have a choice. You either obey or you reject. Uh, Look at what the people do, starting in verse 32. It says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned rams, skins, and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles, and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamps with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light. The golden altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron and the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. And the Lord commanded, so they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. I love the ending part. 
Moses saw all the work. And behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. If my life, if my body is a living sacrifice in my spiritual worship, then I want to lay my life down. I want to do it as God commands me. And as they brought before Moses, this is what we've done. We've done according to you and he blessed them. One day I want to close my eyes to this world. And I want to open them to Christ. And I want him to say, I hope that he'll say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. What I've asked you to do, you've done. Did you do it perfectly? No. Did you make mistakes daily? But the life I've called you to live, you followed after that. When you fell, you confessed, you returned, you repented, and you kept going. Well done. That's what we should all hope for. Because God pursued us. God came to us in the midst of our sin and said, you are going to be mine. He drew us to himself. And because of that, in our hearts, we're We're generous and we understand that he's given us instructions as to how to live. And we follow after those and we're generous with our time, our talent, our treasure, our lives. So that one day he will look at us and say, well done. Not so that we'll feel good, but so that we will understand that we have given of ourselves because of what he has done for us. Our lives should be marked by an obedience to scripture motivated by a love for the Lord. Not motivated out of a fear but motivated out of love for the Lord. The tabernacle would serve as the center of worship for the people. It would remind the Hebrew people of their redemption. It would whisper of the coming salvation of Christ. And as a foreigner would walk through, would walk through their their area, would walk through their, uh, their camp, they would see this. As a child would grow up walking around that, a parent would explain what these things mean. It was an opportunity to proclaim and talk about, all right, the God who parted the Red Sea for his people. And today the tabernacle is gone. God's presence doesn't dwell in a building, but we know from scripture that it dwells in us. That our bodies are a temple, that we are dwelled, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if our lives are marked by an obedience to God's command, because of the pursuit that he has uh, made and the redemption that we've experienced, then we should point others to the beauty and truth of the gospel. How do we hold it together when our lives should fall apart? We hold it together because of Christ. How do we keep going when our life is tough? We do that because of what Jesus has done for us. How do we keep fighting when we're beaten down? We remember the pursuit of Christ to the cross. How do we keep, how do we show up when we know it's not going to be good? We remember what Jesus has done for us and we live in obedience. How do we keep praying for a child who's walked away? We do that in faith because God pursued us and we pray that he will pursue him. How do we live for God in a world that's increasingly hostile to him? We lay ourselves down as a spiritual sacrifice and we say, God, what you've asked me to do, I will do. Where you've asked me to go, I will go. How you've asked me to live, I will live. That's what we do. And that's uh, the challenge that I have for you today. To realize, in essence, as, as this points out, that life, not about you. Not about me. It's not about your kids. Some of you might be grandparents, got all the pictures, not about them. Life is ultimately about God. It's about the God who created us. It's about the God who has pursued us. It's about the God who has redeemed us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done. And our lives should reflect that truth 
and our lives should point others to that. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful again for the opportunity to be here. I'm grateful uh, to, to sit under the, the singing here, to just hear the prayer time. Lord, in my own life, I know many times I am drawn to think of how great I am rather than understanding how great you are. I'm, I'm drawn to look at the things that I've done for you rather than understanding uh, the massive things that you have done for me. So Lord, will you help me in the coming days? Will you help all of us in the coming days and weeks to be generous with ourselves, not out of some guilt, but out of a, out of a gratefulness for the grace, for the mercy, for the redemption that we have experienced for the pursuit of your love of Christ to the cross so that we may show that to others and we may live the life that you've called us to live. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.